Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of Canine's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun. I get to sit down with Dr. Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury, both of whom have worked with Department of Defense and Department of Homeland Security, coming up with the best or better practices when it comes to containment and or storage of canine odor training aids. We cover all of that. In addition, we also go into many different aspects of odor, odor chemistry, and different experiences and things that they have learned throughout their career when it comes to the chemistry of odor. So, with that said, we will begin this episode. I hope you guys enjoy. And as usual, if you have any questions whatsoever, feel free to email me at Ford at SilverStateK9.com. That's Ford at SilverStateK9.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to K9's Talking Sense. Today, I get to have the enjoyment of interviewing Dr. Michelle Mon and her sidekick, as we refer to as Jenna Gadbury. I actually got to meet Michelle a little less than a year ago, more than, than, let's say, eight months ago at the CNCA conference in Palm Springs. I got to sit on one of her classes, and I found that class uh, very informative, and the things that they covered in that class, very important information to share to all of us in the detection dog world. A lot of things that they go over are things that are highly important for those in the professional aspect, but also very important for those in the uh, supported nose work as well. So after a lot of going back and forth and coming up with some good questions, we are here today to do this interview. So I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Mon and Jenna Gadbury to the show. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. Thank you for having us. Well, good. Well, for the listeners who don't know who you guys are, uh, I'll go with Michelle first. If you guys can give your background, uh, what you guys do in a broad strokes kind of thing, what you guys can talk about, and uh, uh, just a synopsis kind of of your history, what you've done in research, and where we're at now. Right. So, um, Michelle here. Uh, I originally planned on becoming a veterinarian, and so my education was really geared towards animal science and uh, that medical background. And then somewhere along the way, I decided that's not really what I wanted to do. And so I ended up going to um, graduate school to get my PhD in animal science and studied pandemic influenzas. Um, So completely unrelated to what I do right now. Uh, and you know, after I graduated, I had no idea what I was going to do with that degree. (laughs) So I started looking for postdoctoral fellowships and opportunities in the area. Um, so I live in Delaware. Uh, and so I looked in the commutable area and found a position at Aberdeen Proving Ground in biodefense. And, uh, that's where I started doing my uh, 
postdoc studies and then a project came along while I was there that um, that involved military working dogs and I decided to sort of make the leap away from the lab and more on the operational side of um, of you know canine research and development and that is my that is my bomb dog in the background can you hear that Yes, we could hear that. <laughs> okay, he's. I, I have the doors closed, and he's banging the doors to try and get in here. I thought someone was typing on a computer. Such a jerk. Hold on, let me let him in. So he, he no problem. Doing no problem. <laughs> so, with that research that you guys have conducted, what's been one of the important key factors that you guys have uh, been focusing on? see as everyone continues to purchase training aids with not having any knowledge nor background of where they've been, what they are, and what they're actually training on. So a big push for us within the scientific side of the house has been trying to address these issues and also trying to get that awareness out to the community as to how we can be bettering ourselves from the get-go, which is training on the right thing. And would you say, or how, let me think, I think the best way to say this, Obviously, we deal with contamination, especially on the law enforcement side of things when it comes to odor. How bad <laughs> is it Depends on how bad you times? want it to be. Um, it can get pretty bad to the point where you really think that you have trained on one odor <laughs> and you are absolutely training on something that is completely different. So it's not that your dog is wrong. Your dog just has a completely different correlation to, all right, I'm going to get mm -hmm. paid because I found the wrapper of you know, the TNT rather than the, than the actual TNT or whatever dad was just eating for lunch rather than what, mm -hmm. you know, C4, whatever it is that he was supposed to be training on. Yeah. And have you guys, you know, you know, you guys done a lot on the explosive side. What have you guys done or have you seen on the narcotic side of things? Uh, we haven't touched too much on the narcotic side. Uh, we've dabbled a little bit into the opioids. Um, although we don't really consider okay. that too much of a narcotic, we see that more of a mm -hmm. chemical. Um, okay. But we, we know that narcotics have just as much of an issue with contamination. However, uh, narcotics dogs are going to see narcotics day in and day out. Um, so through their lifetime, they're going to be able to generalize to those odors. They're going to be able to have, as we would dub that larger Rolodex yeah. because they're continually getting paid and they can say, Oh, well, this is just slightly different, but I'll sit and get paid. Um, how often does a bomb dog really see explosives in his lifetime? Um, I would venture to guess that law enforcement dogs probably really only see their training aids. Um, military, they're probably going to have a little bit more of, um, a wider variety of explosives, especially if they are deploying yep. and uh, working with other uh, nations. But at the end of the day, they're, they're not seeing it day in and day out going in and out of different cars. You know, you've got uh, marijuana from say mm -hmm. Georgia. He's still going to hit on the marijuana that's from Seattle. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there, there was a, I'm sure you guys already know we were all together in, in Pump Springs where Dr. Nathan Hall covers the odor mixtures con concept and the things they've st learned in their studies as well. And uh, the things you're bringing up is uh, the importance of the dogs understanding those mixtures is still focusing in on the key compound that they're looking for in detection. Um, unfortunately, as you're bringing up too, many times uh, where the canine units and handlers and trainers don't know 
is through their storage or other things that are happening, they may be uh, having a level of contamination that makes a non-target item of scent the most important or most prevalent odor. Would that be correct? Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a lawyer question, right? (laughs) So how important is it for canine teams to be, or canine programs to be looking for science for information versus just kind of the things that they, that you guys have seen. That's kind of been a lot of the hand-me-down information. Um, How important is science now moving forward in the dog world? So, In general, I would say it depends on a program's risk tolerance. I mean, there's a lot of programs out there that are working pretty well, uh, despite, you know, contamination issues or, um, you know, the the quality of the training aids or the, you know, the funding that the department gets. And so, uh, you know, if you're in the ground floor of some of the basic research, it has a really high failure rate, but you get to shape the direction and the science. Um, and then if you wait for the applied research to come around, it's a much lower failure rate, but you have to, you have to wait around for it. Um, so, you know, yeah. I, I think it is important for canine programs to be looking for scientific information out there. Um, it's also important to take that critical eye and ask some of the really, um, like not to assume anything. So to ask questions, cause people will throw the word data around a lot and, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. or like study or they'll try and sort of pull one over. I feel like on the canine community and, and that really gets me and Jenna fairly ticked off because we feel like they're sure. people are, you know, lording their degrees uh, you know, their academic degrees over someone or um, really trying to, to like do a bit of bamboozling. So, um, you know, we're, we sort of just try to be the independent voice of reason that uh, they can sort mm-hmm. of sift through all of that and say, you know, they can make that claim and that claim might be valid, but they don't really have the scientific data to back it up. Uh, well, the big thing too is who's who's funding the study and what what is the actual push. So a lot of times you'll see you know at the company that funds the study or hey we want to give you these training aids can you please evaluate them or what have you or please evaluate mm-hmm. this new trend in training but it's geared towards yeah. actually saying that yes this is the best thing since sliced bread and that's something I mean which leads to this other like short question and I'll toss it to you Jenna is. You know, how is science being accepted? And I'm referring it to like when you guys show up and you guys are uh, showing these uh, working dog programs methods or, or best practices when it comes to the different things when it comes to odor. How is it being, how are you guys seeing it being accepted? Um, is there any pushback from, because it, it, the way I have seen it in most recent times is there's, you know, lack of a better term, old school and new school. So, you, you, a lot of things that have come to light through science kind of, you know, debunk some things that have been believed for a long time. So you guys being the science arm, how is it being, how are you guys seeing it being accepted as you guys go out there and do what you're doing? Well, I think that for us, we had the opportunity to start in from the operational side. So as Michelle said, we kind of mm-hmm. have the three arms. You have your operational side, which is, Hey, boots to the ground. How are we going to make this better? Our mission support. 
the applied side and the basic. So operational is where we're actually working hand in hand with the folks that are at the end of the leash and, you know, it's, it's life or death. So being able to be at the ground and not be stuck back in the lab and just pushing, you know, reports and documents. And I'm sure when you were a handler, you would love to read everyone's reports. Not really, but um, <laughs> yeah. actually showing nope. that we have an interest in, in the betterment of that team rather than, hey, we're going to force this on you because this is what our machine in the lab says. So we're starting to see a little bit more of a paradigm shift that the teams are interested in what the science has to say because they actually have a, a voice. So instead of just running back into the lab and saying, hey, this is everything, this is how it is, Michelle and I have been making sure that we've been actually applying it on that operational. So, hey, our machine says that there is odor coming off of this explosive. Can you please verify with your dog, yes or no? Um, because we don't really necessarily rely on, on machines. And that's mm-hmm. been something that we've been pushing on our colleagues as well Is hey, it's great for you to be having all these fancy, you know, chemistry reports that tells us all the VOCs that are coming off of an explosive, but that means nothing to the handler. How is that going to better that handler and that canine team on the ground? Yeah. Oh, well, this explosive is actually heavier. So he's going to have to get in close to that explosive. Well, that's the type of data that needs to go back. Not, oh, well, when you have, you know, mm-hmm. this hexamine over here plus this octane, it's all, it's all Greek. So it's trying to figure out how we can marry up that science and everyone talk on the same level. Yeah. And that's a, been a big hurdle too, is there's a lot of terms that are, get thrown around out there that are mislabeled or not the correct word for that definition, but it's an industry term that gets used a lot. And I've seen that be add to the confusion at times. So, you know, as the science that gets out there and and with people like you guys going out there and being hand in hand with the handlers, like you said, versus being in the lab that helps do that. Cause we, you're right. We have to kind of get on that whole same page. And that's a, and that's a big thing to kind of to wrap our arms around, of course, because there's been so long of being, uh, like I said, it's, uh, we have a lot of beliefs in the dog world and we tend to, you know, follow that religiously and we'll fight to the death kind of thing to believe in that. Um, until there's data that, you know, can contradict it. Even still though, I've seen it, uh, you know, disagreements when it comes to that. So, I know this as science enters our world, it becomes a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, Jenna, um, Jenna and I refer to that as the, the tribal knowledge of the, of the canine community. Um, and, and it also has a bit of that, you know, that tribal mentality as well. Um, and so, you know, there is that new school, old school, or there's like drug versus explosives or, uh, you know, military versus Leo or law enforcement. Or, you know, there's, there's all these sort of yeah. factions um, and so, you know, the, yep. the science tends to get accepted fairly well, um, in the projects, at least that Jenna and I are working because they're coming to us saying we have an issue yeah. with this, or we have this capability gap. And so, um, we're, we're working for them, trying to help them through that. And that's a little bit of a mm-hmm. different aspect as well. Um, as opposed to like, you know, to what Jenna was saying, where we sort of roll into someone else's canine program and say, here's, you know, the latest and greatest. Um, and we also don't try and convince yeah. anyone that, I mean, there, there's going to be people like in the old school community or whatever it is that just, that don't want to hear it. Um, that don't want to see the data that, Correct. that, or they'll, you know, they'll see it and say, well, well, I still want to do it this way. And, you know, for us, that's okay. We, I yeah. mean, 
that typically doesn't make a difference in our lives. Um, and so, you know, mm -hmm. we're, we don't have um, sort of an agenda when it comes to that either. So uh, at the end of the day, we just make sure that we're helping our end users that, that have come to us and we can, we, you know, can rest easy knowing that, that we did that. Yeah, definitely. And which leads me to this question, which is, or let you, let you describe. So when I went to CNCA and I saw your lecture, you guys are talking about the project you guys have been currently working on, which was directly related to the storage and containment of odor. Uh, can you speak about what you guys are doing in that aspect? And then I'll have some follow-on questions from that. Um, yeah, so we, we have multiple projects that involve um, what we call headspace analysis. And so that's the laboratory aspect of analyzing the volatile organic compounds, the VOCs, the odor profile, if you will, of um, various training aids. And uh, sometimes we're looking for contamination. Sometimes we're trying to evaluate the shelf life or the service life service life of that training aid and sometimes we're trying to push the envelope a bit and come up with um, non-detonable training aids so how can we um, make sure that we can capture the odor of an explosive without actually having the explosive present um, and then we're trying to get a study going to evaluate um, you know some of the, the items that are on the market and so that we can have some you know independent data behind those as well. So, um, like Jenna said, we work on everything from uh, the point of origination. So, when you first get those training aids in, and, and Cameron, you had put a question to us about, you know, should um, agencies get, you know, evaluate the purity of their training aids? Um, and it's like, yes, but this is so costly, and and I and and you won't like the answer. Because, because you're going to get these training aids and you're going to say, what am I paying for? Because they're already contaminated by the time they come to my doorstep. Um, and so it's, you know, it's like you're going to pay to, to already get the answer that, that, you, that you know. Um, so Jenna and I have also been pushing for the development of canine calibration standards. And so this would sort of go hand in hand with how we treat our laboratory instruments that we spend millions and millions and millions of dollars on lab instruments, handhelds, etc. And in that we take, um, we have all these calibration standards to make sure that these instruments are working properly. And those reagents, those calibration standards are extremely pure, 99.99% uh, purity. And it's, and we need that to make sure that the instruments are working properly. So why why do we in, in, invest and in, in put that those kind of resources into the instrumentation and not into the dogs? When at the end of the day, it's the dogs that are going downrange. It's the dogs that um, that really need those calibration standards. And so um, you know, we would love to see that be a part of the market where you could actually get. Um, a, a training aid delivered that doesn't have an MSDS or an SDS that says, oh, this is between zero and 40%, uh, you know, nitroglycerin. And you could actually have a sheet that says, this is what this uh, training aid actually is. And then you start, you can at least start from a good starting point. And then we can, you know, worry about the rest of the uh, 
chain from, you know, transport and cross-contamination and all that good stuff. Sure. No, and you bring up, uh, and that's a big point that I've had in my discussions with a lot of the classes uh, in recent uh, times here is um, obviously a defense team could request the training aids be tested and, and analyzed to, just so, you know, when they go to court, they could say, okay, this is what you're, you know, we got a sample of your narcotics that you train on. This is what we found out. Going, I, my point to the handlers or the canine programs is if you have the means to get that question answered before, you're much better off than standing there and hearing it being told to you in a legal setting. Um, like you said, in some cases that can be very uh, costly. In other cases, not so much. Like with agencies like LAPD or LA County, they have labs right there. They can send their stuff to, and it, and it gets given to them. Some of them, it, what you brought up is it's given to them when they get their training aids. They're lucky enough that their crime lab already does these things for them, which is important. But obviously an agency of 35 officers in the middle of you know, Utah may not have that capability, so it's a different story. Um, and like you said, having a way to uh, calibrate, in a sense, uh, the dog and the, and what they're uh, being trained to detect is highly important. And in in general, it's something that's always highly debated, as you guys already know. Uh, each area, like you said, each tribe has their thought processes on how we go about doing that. So with with what you guys have, have been uh, doing with that, what um, what would you – I'll give this to Jenna. What are some of the best practices when at least it comes to storing your training aid for your canine program? Well, first off, it's going to be what you're going to do when you actually get that training aid when it rolls onto your doorstep or into your lab. Um, it's going to be packaging it appropriately separate from all the other training aids. We see time and time again people having all of their training aids out all at once, uh, sitting next to each other, packaged together, sitting in the back of the car together, um, no lids, same scent bags. Um, they won't toss out the scent bags after you know going through a couple of training iterations. So I would say the very, very first step is actually finding what is going to be your containment source. So what does that container look like? Is it a mason jar? Uh, unfortunately, I've seen people use Ziploc bags. That's not recommended. Um, is it going to be a scent bag? Again, I don't recommend that. You cannot decontaminate your scent bag from dog slobber, food, um, surrounding items. Um, we in the DOD, uh, the Army is moving towards the TAD, which is a training aid delivery device, um, which allows odor to come in and out, but it also um, keeps Sorry, it allows the odor to come out, but it also keeps that training aid pristine within the jar. Um, so for us, we recommend having separate jars for each of your odors um, and keeping um, separate pelican cases, uh, especially if you're going with a mason jar, they do still off-gas. So you're going to want to uh, pay attention to some of these odors will actually combine gases and cause another gas that you can be training to or that can spontaneously combust. Um, so I, I guess to me, it's the awareness of whoever is actually going to be packaging these training aids for training and understanding that they, they are, they do have to be treated as single items rather than a group that you're swapping out. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And the thing you're bringing up was another thing that we talked about and I had, uh, one of the researchers from Texas tech here and she had explained the same thing that you just did, you know, using glass jars, but when you use a mason jar, that lid's not really designed to keep anything inside per se, and it and it, uh, and it leaks quite a bit. 
um, she had brought up, if you're going to use a mason jar, go online and buy the uh, Teflon seals that you can mm-hmm. put on underneath the cap but ideally it's best to get the uh, obviously the device you're talking about the tad but in lieu of that the glass jars that have the teflon seal to it so when you close you're reducing the amount of off-gassing as much as possible but we both we all know here like you brought up i've seen i can't tell you how many times we see the training aids in the plastic bag uh, whether it be an evidence bag or what have you, and then that's inside a typical canvas or nylon type Velcro bag, and then that's what's tossed in the Pelican case that they have. My favorite is all of them in one ammo can. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so you you guys bring up a great point, and this is a question I've asked before on other episodes of the podcast here. So obviously a common method that has been out there in training has been the cocktail or stew method where they place all their substances in one type of vessel, whether it be typically a box and have the dogs run on that. What would you say is problematic in that approach? So we actually um, ran a project for the department of defense that addressed just that and whether or not the stew theory uh, cocktail method was actually a viable method. And uh, what we quickly found out, I don't know if you want me to go through the whole study, but what we quickly found out was that the dogs were very proficient on all the odors together. And the reason being was because they were actually targeting one or two specific odors, um, specifically taggins. So we did have a, um, we had a Primus Sheet Mm -hmm. 1000 in there, which we all know has the DMMB in there. Um, So they were very, very proficient on them all together. But when we separated those odors out with pristine odors, so they had never been, um, you know, coupled together before, um, the dogs were unable mm-hmm. to find the individual odors other than the Prima sheet and a little bit of um, the uh, GoX. So um, what we then did was, okay, let's yep. take all the odors that had been stored together in one jar that they had trained on for the stew, and were they able to find all those odors, um, which then just kind of bolstered our whole contamination theory. So those dogs were 100% on all the odors. So that just goes to show just yep. how quickly, one, you can contaminate your odors, yep. and two, how that, that training methodology, we all thought, hey, yeah, these dogs are great on these five odors. Yep. Um, that was absolutely incorrect. They were really only extremely proficient on one, semi-proficient on the other, and 0% on the others. Um, so the big thing there is you now have dogs that can detect odor and are shown to be viable detectors. Is there a time cost difference Mm -hmm. between now you teach them the game, they now understand that they're going to get paid for these odors, and does it um, quicken the process for them to now be trained on single odors? So Mm -hmm. does it work? Yes and no, (laughs) unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Well, you bring up what came up when Dr. Hall did the same thing, and you you said almost exactly what he said. When you put all those... all those substances together in one containment, they don't all off gas equally. There's ones that are highly volatile and ones that are not so much. So obviously the most prominent one is the one the dog is constantly taking in its psychological preference in a sense that's getting reinforced common, you know, most, most oftenly. So in that sense, what you do, like you said, the tagnets in that situation was one of the ones that had the strongest amount of odor. So the dogs through the reinforcement definitely know that one. And then the other ones, they are not proficient in when they are separated. And to his point was if you take each odor out and you imprint it separately, at least you're creating the same value of reinforcement to each specific odor. 
And then it's still important to expose, you know, down that line, the contamination aspect or the combination aspect, because again, not all odors combine the same way. Like if you mix red and, you know, red and uh, yellow together, you may get green. In other cases, you're not going to get that mixture. It's not going to come out the same way. But uh, by at least independently reinforcing each substance and then going down and doing your mixtures, you'll get a much more proficient dog versus the thought process, which is, oh, we throw them all together, imprint, and we're good. You know, and many just don't understand the chemistry aspect, which you guys just brought up, that can happen. And then the psychological aspect of the dog of what they're getting reinforced for. Exactly. And that's, and that's just, I guess, up to the trainer. Is it better for you to get them used to having all these odors, a big blast in the face and you get paid and then you go through and you do each individual odor, or does it make more sense for you to do each of those individual odors and then figure out whether or not they can still find it when it's in a cocktail? Yeah. Yeah. And then, so there, this leads to another common question and Michelle, I'll let you answer this one. When it comes to shelf life of the training aids what are uh, what is the best practice because again we all know substances don't degrade the same way so the i think you guys hear often is yearly training aids are switched out but is there something that we can do better or is there or is there uh, a practice that we should probably look into to apply that's better than just doing it on an annual basis obviously in some cases they don't even do it annually they do it longer than that yeah so that's one of the, the big unknown areas is that we don't have good data on um, the shelf life and service life of these training aids. Um, and so, in, you know, with the absence of that data, what we do is we have an enormous focus on containment um, and, you know, proper containment. And like Jenna said, we don't have our explosives out together so that they can't off-gas onto each other. Um we take uh, a layered approach to the containment. So it's typically, you know, single containment and then double containment and triple containment. So that would be a TAD and then um, either one of those uh, Teflon arson bags that ATF uses or like a lock sack bag. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then it's in its own Pelican case. And then it's in, you know, and it's in its own area within uh, whatever bunker or storage area. So, um, the, you know, and, and that seems completely excessive, um, and, and maybe it is, but again, with, without having data that, you know, it, it makes sense to us to do it that way. Um, and then we try and keep the training aids at some sort of stable temperature range and out of direct sunlight, we know when possible. Um, mm-hmm. and the, you know, the regular rotation schedule, you know, annually is just because that works typically for budget people. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not based yep. on the, the, the training aids at all. And so, uh, Jenna often will talk about, you know, there's C4 and then there's C4 that's been left out in the sun for a couple days. Uh, and they're completely different, mm-hmm. uh, training aids at that point. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, I, there's best practices, but they're really only there because we don't know. Um, and one of the things we were looking yeah. at was um, there where Jenna and I work at the Army, there's this, uh, what we call a VOC kit, a volatile organic compound kit. Okay. And it's this little calorimetric 
ticket, like paper-based ticket. It's tiny. Um, and you can sort of, you can put it on, you know, a Connex shipping container. You can put it anywhere and it absorbs the odors that surround it. And it'll give you an idea uh, of what okay. odors are in that, um, like an odor profile, essentially. And so you can put this um, okay. by, it can tell you different brands of beer, or it can tell you different types of coffee based on the pattern that shows up on this paper-based array. And so it would be super cool, um, it would be super cool to see if we could have those tickets on each Pelican case, and we could start to see the degradation mm -hmm. or the the difference between explosives as they age. And we could get to a point where if we see a certain um, profile or pattern, that we know that those explosives are no okay. longer, quote-unquote, good, or they're not ideal for training. Uh, and so, you know, yeah. that might have some utility. There's other aspects of that where how we have to sort of question the basics, like how what is good um if it still goes boom it's still a viable threat material um uh a security sure. aspect and so uh you know maybe that mm -hmm. is something we need to train train on but it doesn't belong in imprinting it does not belong as a calibration standard and so that, and that's where we come back to Correct. um that clean kit dirty kit stuff that jenna and i talk about all the time is that contaminated samples old samples um whatever they are, they have a place in, in training. Um, they absolutely yeah. do. If they just, they, you also need to have the counter to that, which is, um, you know, a, a kit or, or training aids that you know are clean uh, and relatively uncontaminated so that you can always go back and make sure those dogs are hitting on um, the, the real odor or the, uh, the pure odor at some point. Yeah, no, and, and you, what you just brought up was going to be another question I was going to have next, which was, you know, training aids for odor imprint are can be or need to be very different than the training aids that you actually use, let's say, in the your maintenance training, because obviously, what the importance of odor imprinting is very strong, and having a, a clean material or as clean as they can get is important for that odor imprinting but then in maintenance like we've talked about a little bit already is materials that are going to be common to their uh, environment or common with the way they've been handled and broken down and things like that where there's that level of contamination which we do have to deal with but on the imprinting stage we need to have a better more pure substance to work with so that way the picture to the dog is as clear as possible exactly so on that one, with that, is there? Do you guys know of any research that's happening in regards to this, as far as um, what, you're, what you just kind of described, as far as shelf life, that kind of thing, or have you guys heard of anything that's coming down the line, possibly about that? Yeah, Jenna, Jenna and I are doing a few studies right now um, in, in that area. Okay, good. And so, hopefully, hopefully, we'll be able to share. <clears throat> excuse me, share the data um, when that when we're completed with that in the next probably 12 to 18 months. Oh, perfect. Good. So we're not too, too far away uh, yep. when it comes to the research on that one. So it, it, in that you brought up another thing and I'll let uh, Jenna answer this one. Commonly what is brought up in training is the word not at source. And of course we all make the joke and, and uh, comments of, Oh, we need scent goggles so we can see where the other's collecting at. But 
um, based on your guys training and education and experience, is it, you know, probable or how would you guys describe <laughs> if a dog, you know, the, the location of the actual substance may not be the best spot for where odor is at or collecting. A hundred percent agree. Uh, knotted sores drives me bananas as, as yeah. a handler and as a scientist, because, because like you said, we know that it, that the source might actually not have, um, the, the greatest collection of odor. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, we wish, we wish, we wish for odor goggles all the time. So whenever I get this, cause we, we see this a lot in the military because obviously we have um, commanders or whatnot that don't really truly understand how this canine works. And so they want that nose directly on the explosive. When in reality, I want to know before I even walk into the house and just call it. I'm not even going to go try to find a room. There's something in there. I don't want to touch it. Or I don't want to go down that road. There's something buried. I don't want to touch it. So what I bring up is we see it a lot with cadaver dogs where there will be a buried person, but that dog is not necessarily going to find that person in the ground. And more times than not, we're finding those dogs looking up in the trees. Does that mean he's wrong? No, that means that that tree is collecting all of that, you know, chemistry that's coming off of that cadaver and dropping it out of its leaves. And so, you know, we get a lot of blank stares, but that just also kind of goes to Mm -hmm. show like, well, well, how close do you want him to get? Like he's telling you that cadaver is somewhere around that tree. Is he wrong? No. He's just not going to point and say it's right there. No, correct. In the drug dog world, um, I see it very commonly where the trainer, the dog alerts, and it's to say anywhere between six feet, eight feet away as an average. And I'll hear the trainer go, nope, not at source. The dog is, you can tell the dog is pretty adamant, hey, it's right here. So then it turns into the handler steps in and starts well, check here, check here, check here. So it turns into, and this is the side of research that I'm a part of, is the cognition side. Well, the dog's now going, okay, I'll just follow what you want me to do. I found odor, but apparently I have to do this game with you and go and arbitrarily just give you this response at this location, even though it's down here. And my point being is kind of what you brought up there is when you're operational, you don't know. And if that dog alerts there, you're going to begin your search in that general area. And it may take you, you know, moving forward X amount of feet one way or another, and you'll find what you're looking for. But the dog itself was correct in the area in which it alerted because that's the better or more concentration of odor compared to where the source material is. But man, are trainers so convinced that where the material is at is where the best spot of odor is going to be at. And I, and you guys in the scientific side can easily say and prove that's not correct. Well, and it's just a matter of like, does it look pretty when he goes right up to that drawer or right up to that bag? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But we're not dealing with a nose work dog where you do want to find that correct. very small drop of clove or whatever it is that's out there. I mean, mm-hmm. we are talking in most cases, especially for a bomb dog, you are talking about life or death. So do I care if he's right up on it? As soon as I start yep. to see a change of behavior, that's when I should be pulling out of there rather than waiting for him to park it. Um, and I think that a lot of times too, what we see with evaluators is it's kind of that, pardon my French, big dick on the table. Like, Hey, I'm here to tell you that you're incorrect and I'm going to read your dog better than you. We can't tell him what to find. We want, Uh our job as a handler is to be reading our dog. So if I walk into that room and I tell him, Hey, there's something hot in here before I actually go through and do a search, that's on me to make that call. And if you tell me not at source, I'm going to say this is the whole room mm-hmm. is source. Yeah. And it's, and it's same on a vehicle. I mean, I've seen it again. I'll use the drug dog example because they deal with a lot of the time, smaller amounts of substance and 
the dog will alert to the vehicle or alert to a part of the vehicle. And I'll see time and time again, evaluators, trainers going, nope, not at source. And all that ends up doing is causing more confusion. The car's hot. It's got odor in it. You, you know, you've met the legal side of things to be able to search that vehicle when the dog alerts to it. And every handler that I know of, including myself, when I've done it, my dog alerts, it, I may have found the actual substance, you know, a number of feet away, right. but I knew the dog told me there was something already there. Like you said, as soon as we came up to the vehicle, sometimes I know something's there. So, well, and we're ruining the confidence of the dog and of the handler when we say not at source. Absolutely. I mean, and then of course, handlers go down the wormhole when they start uh, stop trusting. The, it's just, it just goes down. It's just a, a, a cycle constantly of dog and handler totally not believing each other or not trusting each other. And then it just goes go south. Very well, quickly. and why do we think the dog keeps looking at the handler? Michelle, you see it with Usher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, this brings up the what we teach them and what we train them and then how we expect them to act in operations. And yep. so we teach them to go to um, the, the greatest concentration gradient, right. To follow that concentration gradient of odor to the, from, you know, from the smallest amount to the largest amount of odor, we don't teach them to go to source. And so, and, and, and we think that those are the same things, but they're not. And so when your dog in operations is going to the, the, the greatest source, you know, the, the greatest concentration gradient, right? Or the greatest amount of odor. Yep. That, the dog's doing what it was taught to do. Um, and so then, you know, penalizing the dog or handler for not going to source is is completely ridiculous. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, it, you know, you have been in a Spanish course all year and then you give them the French exam. Like what? Yeah. Yeah, no, perfect example. Uh, right, so it doesn't make any sense. Um, and then the other part of this is is Jenna and I are also always, like we talk about the con ops, like for the concept of operations, I mean, how are you, you using these dogs? And um, going to source and explosives is not necessarily always the right thing to do. Um, nope. And so we have, we have certain end users that actually want their dogs to alert at the first time change of behavior yeah. and so um, they don't follow the odor and we mm -hmm. have other end users that don't want their dogs to um, have a final response they just want the dogs to show that change um, and then sort of peel off so there's all sorts of different uses for these dogs and I think focusing on that and then making sure that that matches up with what we're teaching them at the beginning um, is really, really important. And so one of the other things that would drive me bananas, and Jenna and I see this a lot, and was part of the reason that we developed the, the TAD, the training aid delivery device, is that uh, people would put down a cotton scent bag full of cocaine or something in, in their mm -hmm. training and put that down and then, you know, pick it up at the end of tra the training day. The next dog or handler goes in there the next day, the dog alerts to what that handler thinks is a blank. Yeah. But the dog's picking yep. up on trace. The dog's doing yep. the right thing. That's that's something that we should be congratulating the dog and rewarding it for. Absolutely. And yet, what is the what happens? You know, no, you know, yank the chain, and 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 we completely again penalize that dog for having the proper response. And so, you know, for us, false responses um, 
and and again, like we're not we're not in day to day life or death scenarios, but a lot of the mm-hmm. forces we see um, are we simply ignore or we we trust the dog and we try and investigate to see why they had that response and so some people will call that a nuisance alarm um Mm -hmm. and our job is sort of to investigate is was that a a true alarm like is there uh some odor that does have some crossover with their trainers this episode is brought to you by exet canine Exet Canine possesses a broad range of unique expertise in canine training and handling with applications both in scientific and operational capacities. Exet Canine also specializes in third-party independent canine certifications, assessments, and validations for both U.S. government and private business. Their staff understands individual requirements and is proficient in providing optimal canine solutions. Their team has active DOD secret and Department of Homeland Security sensitive security information security clearances. We pride ourselves on upholding the highest standards of integrity, discretion, and professionalism. Also at Xset Canine is the TAD device or the training aid delivery device. Xset Canine is proud to introduce the first commercial product the training aid delivery device created by U.S. Army and is designed by canine trainers and scientists. The TAD can bring your canine training to the next level. The design considerations ensure all components of the TAD are NASA outgassing compliant. It's inert, it's highly compatible with most training aids. It's rugged enough for daily use and training. Cleaned according with EPA standard methods, capable of even being decontaminated and deodorized of human scent and any other environmental odors. The TAD device is an awesome device. I have seen it firsthand. It's a product that allows your training aid to be protected, but it allows it to off-gas the target odor that's inside it without being contaminated with outside scents. So there's a membrane that allows odor to get out, but not odors to get in. So I can tell you firsthand by seeing it, this is a great device. This is a great company. If you get a chance, go visit their website, Xset Canine. That is spelled www.excetk, the number nine, dot com. Again, www.excetk, number nine, dot com. The website will also be listed in our show notes and also in our social media feed. Top Dog Police Canine Training and Consulting, Canine Supervisors Course. This class will offer you the best outline of information you will find in any supervisor course throughout the country. Their instructors will teach you from experience and have their resumes to back it up. You will see the training in the following areas. Canine Legal Update, Supervisor Legal Update, Handler Selection, Problem Handlers, Canine Selection, Canine unit pros and cons. Why do canine units fail? SWAT versus canine. Liability versus reality. Critical incident review. Canine unit record keeping. Class scenarios with a hands-on approach. And then canine deployment reviews. These two instructors, Ron Cloward, who is retired lieutenant from Modesto, and Bob Eden, the one many of you guys know from the International Canine Conference, from the CATS program for record keeping, 
Both of these gentlemen have a vast level of experience, especially when it comes to managing, supervising canine programs. They are well diverse in their experience with agencies throughout the United States that they've helped or consulted with. Let these individuals help you by you attending their canine supervisor's course. To receive more information, just go to their website, topdog97.com, T-O-P-D-O-G-9-7.com, and look up the supervisor course information. We will be hosting one in October in Las Vegas. Uh, we'll have some details to follow, and that will be posted also on social media. Again, if you get a chance, check out Canine Supervisors Course, hosted by Top Dog Police Canine and Consulting. This episode is brought to you by Silver State Canine. Silver State Canine, located in fabulous Scent City, Las Vegas. Silver State Canine is a premier education and training facility. We understand many of you, however, can't get to Las Vegas. So, Silver State Canine has created our mobile classroom. We come to you. We now offer many of the classes and seminars we've held in Las Vegas, but now we can do it at your location. Some of the classes that we offer are our canine cognition class. Utilize these tests that we show you to help you pick a better dog, or if you already have your dogs, use these tests to understand your dog better. Do they have strong memory? Are they a problem solver? This information is vital to help you train your dog better. We also offer our detection through cognition class. If you're a detection dog handler, whether it be professional and or nose work, this class is a must. We give you information that you can apply that is based on science and communication so that way you can enhance your training based on cognition. We also offer our problem solving through cognition. Again, taking these cognitive tests, applying them to your training will help you problem solve some of the many common issues that are out there. In addition to that, we have our Science of Odor class. We also have our Explosive Identification and Safety class. For anybody, whether you're a sport enthusiast or you're professional, we have our Search Strategy classes. These classes help you come up with a methodology based on practical and proven methods to help you enhance your search strategies when deploying or putting your dog through a trial. We offer these classes and many more. For further information, please contact us at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK9.com. That's Ford at SilverStateK, the number nine, dot com. No, and that, uh, no matter what the substance is, that's a very probable thing that can happen, you know, just to do to all the different chemical mixtures and compounds that exist, both explosive, narcotic, even in the, uh, you know, let's say cadaver side of things, there's things that may happen that the dogs are going to uh, pick up on. No, well, it's, it's all... All those, all those poor dogs that got, um, <laughs> that, that got punished for, for finding yeah. printer cartridges, remember? And then yep. we found out that they had some explosive odors in them. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. No, I remember that. And um, th- there was other things that had nitrates in it that dogs were alerting to or chlorates in it. And, of course, we're like, no, you're wrong. This right. isn't what we're looking for. You know, the stupid human right. causes so many, so many uh, 
parts of confusion to the dog in its process. And again, the, the fun part I have is on the cognition side, seeing all that, you know, and, and my job now is showing handlers how to, to understand that cognitive ability. But the biggest issue, the number one thing that I always bring up, it's always us that either misinterprets or thinks that we have the better answer and we couldn't be more wrong many times. Yeah. And then like you guys showing on the chemical side and, and the odor side of it, how really wrong we can be. Yeah, we, we certainly give benefit of the doubt to the dog and then um, and explore from there. Yeah. Well, I'll let you both answer this one because this one is a typical controversial subject, but it's the manufactured training aids versus the training aids that are what we typically find. So the layman term, pseudo versus real, right? Um, what have you guys seen or what's some of the research that you guys are part of that uh, delves into that? I'll refer to the uh, one major study that we had at the time. There were actually only two real pseudos. So we um, in the DOD, we refer to pseudos as um, uh, having absolutely no explosive uh, residue in it at all. Um, and then we refer to mimics as uh, something that typically will have maybe an HMX in there, an RDX in there, but it will have some explosive residue in it. Um, so going back to the pseudos, because that was a pretty big thing a few years back, and the DOD was looking at um, a couple of folks that were using it within their umbrella, and we wanted to know if, if it was actually workable. Um, a big thing that Michelle and I push is you cannot do any of these studies on operational dogs. One, they've already trained on odors. You have no idea what odor they've trained on that could be possibly correlating to your data. And then um, two, you don't know if you're going to degrade that operational dog by training him on a specific odor um, that you have no knowledge on. Um, so I'll get off my soapbox on that one. But um, so we did a study. There were only two um, true pseudos out on the market. So we took both of those pseudos. We had uh, three groups of dogs, uh, three groups of three. So um, again, that kind of pushes towards that. I never want to hear someone say, well, I took my one dog and I ran this study. Like a study of one does not work for me. A study of two doesn't work. You can have a yes and a no. What are you going to go with? Um, so we had three dogs trained on um, group A. We had three dogs trained on group B and we had three dogs trained on the real explosives um, and got them all proficient. We did baseline tests to make sure that these dogs were all indeed able to find the odors that they were trained on. And then we went through and did kind of like a, a cross match. So if you're trained on group A, could you find group B? If you're trained on group A, could you find the real thing? And then um, all the way across the board. And what we found was um, the best way to put it, pseudos is not a good way to imprint your dog on explosives. Um, I cannot say whether or not it's a good maintenance tool. That was not something that was a part of the study. Um, although a lot of people did see the report that came out from the study and just kind of went across the board and said, pseudos are horrible. Um, I can't tell you that they're horrible, but I can tell you that I would never want to train dogs, uh, imprint dogs on um, pseudos for odors. Yeah, and so what the argument that's thrown back out is, well, all of these dog handler practitioners that have trained their dogs and imprinted on pseudo are very successful when they go out and train on whatever live substances out there. How, what's the counter argument to that statement? So I would say 99% of these dogs that are training on these pseudo odors and are going out and finding the odors are probably not explosives. I'm going to venture to guess that they are probably narcotics and they are finding the real thing out in their, you know, region or district or what have you. And so that just goes okay. right along with the, their generalizing. So they're able to just continually okay. get paid day in and day out. Whereas you have that bomb dog that's only going to train on, say, those five odors every week, hopefully twice a week. Yeah. But 
they there you start to extinct all these other odors and he's only going to look for that one specific odor which if all they have access to are those pseudos that's all he's going to be able to find okay so even if so the argument could still basically be the same if it is explosive dog that does get uh you know say it's a military dog that goes out there and does make fines uh in the real world on a substance you're uh going with in most cases that's with the dog generalizes hey this is something different here maybe kind of similar but i'll just go for it because you know it why not if that's been a part of his training though right so like sure if we've seen it and i've seen it in some of my studies where i've trained dogs on only five odors and then when i brought that same odor in but not the exact one they've been Mm -hmm. training on they have a real difficult time finding it and it's because now i've extincted out every single odor and i've turned them into robots we will only get paid on these five odors so if you're only training on pseudos and you never see anything else who's to say that you're actually going to go and look for anything else kind of goes along the same lines of if i am a dog that uh is supposed to work at a football stadium Mm -hmm. but i've never been paid on finding an odor inside that football stadium chances are i'm going to take my handler for a walk because i know i'm never going to get paid in here yeah no that that's a that that brings up a whole other argument that exists in the dog world which is you know you're training what you do in training versus what you do in reality but the but you know, to your point there on the, you know, pseudo versus real kind of concept and the generalization, you know, I know I have seen, I kind of put dogs into, you know, two loose categories, the ones that are super specific and the ones that are really, that will generalize the super specific, specific ones, uh, train on their training odors. And then all of a sudden I go use, you know, the neighboring agencies training odors. My dogs will, will show a change of behavior and go, not what I'm looking for and move, not mine and move on, but they showed some interest. And then there's the ones that are like, close enough, I'll take it, you know, here's my response, and, and respond to whatever that order is. And, uh, you know, using that to kind of prong category, obviously, let's just say I imprinted on pseudo, the one that's pretty good at generalizing was when they go in the environment. Because, of course, as we all know, handlers, when they put things out, uh, do so in a generally similar fashion. So how they hide you know, the substance is very similar across the board. So the dog can go, Oh yep, there's definitely something different here. This is a novel to that area. I can generalize respond and then they'll go, okay, yep. See success from here to here. You know, I trained on this and then see it worked over here. Um, where obviously real world could throw some you know changes into that, which is, you know, it's only limited by that person's imagination, how they want to try to conceal that substance, whether it could be explosive or narcotic. And then you deal with, you know, that, and again, the dog may uh, also guess. I mean, I could throw into the whole thing of training where, you know, let's say I train my dog on a uh, manufacturer training aid, and then I go out to the neighboring agency and we, he puts out or he, she puts out live odor. I run my dog and I use live odor because people, you know, it's just an easy way to, to mimic that. But uh, the dog goes out there, responds. Let's say it was a third or fourth dog. Well, now what's also in that scent picture is dog saliva, other dog odors, all the things that they now use to help generalize there's something here along with the substance itself. So we look at things and go, oh, see, it works. Well, that's something that Michelle and I, we walk that fine line of do we want a specifist or do we want a yeah. generalist? Um, and depending on the threat, you're going to probably have to waffle between the two to figure out where you're going to lie. I mean, we've had certain threats where we have to have specifics. Yeah. It can't, it cannot be, um, Oh, well, this is kind of sort of, no, sure. it has to be specifics, but you know, along the explosive realm, you want to have more of a generalist yeah. to an extent though. I mean, I don't yeah. want them hitting on my Ford focus, uh, <laughs> seatbelt just because it yeah. has explosive residue from the factory, but he's mm-hmm. still not wrong. No. 
Correct. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you know, in the bomb world, sometimes it's better safe than sorry. And you'll go with, you know, the generalized uh, response or change the behavior and say, Hey, let's, let's examine this further. Uh, my dog should be some change here, even though it's not the typical indication that they're used yeah. to. So our, our party line is more or less, you know, real is always going to be best. If you can get your hands on the real threat, that is always mm-hmm. going to be the best. But we do recognize that, especially within the DOD realm, we can't always have real depending on where we're at. So we actually have, um, we're looking mm-hmm. at uh, pushing forward with a study where we will do an analysis on all of the COTS commercial off-the-shelf um, items that are both mimics and pseudos. Because yep. we do recognize there is that gap. Hey, I'm going to be on the ground for three weeks and I have nothing to work on with my dog. Well, that's probably a good opportunity yeah. to be instituting that pseudo or that yeah. mimic just to keep them up to speed and keep that you know team moving and, and getting some payouts of, hey, you're going to yeah. find stuff. No, for sure. Yes. Michelle, um, anything you want to add to that? So to the to the people that say I train on these and it and it works, um, I would I would ask you know ask them if they're willing to to put that up in a you know a blind test that like a third party evaluator would mm-hmm. would run, um, and and if they and if mm-hmm. they do, I, I would be very interested in the results of that, um, and. That, that would usually, you know, end the conversation there. But the, on the other side, I mean, um, if, if they're saying it works and anecdotally that works for them, then, then great. Um, it, for us, that's not good enough because we actually mm-hmm. need data in order to make decisions and, or help decision makers within the DOD, um, you know, make huge policy decisions yeah. based on, you know, what are we buying? What are we using? How are we training? And so we can't just say like, oh, well, this worked for, you know, Linda out of, you know, Idaho or, you know, wherever it is. Like it, ha- it has to be, um, yeah. it has to be more than that. No, for sure. Now, what when you guys have tested the manufactured products, what are what are the things that you're seeing that that's actually coming off as odor or what's in that, what's being seen when it's tested? Well, we actually, so for us, we don't do very much headspace analysis. We have some colleagues that will do that for us. Uh, one of our big things is we don't want to be the only person mm-hmm. that's doing all of the testing. So we like to have a couple of collaborators in a project so that it's not just, oh, well, yeah, these people did everything from soup to nuts. And of course, this yeah. is going to be their answer. Um, so I would I would prefer to have uh, someone from one yeah. of our other chemistry labs actually answer that question as far as what's really coming off. And honestly, it's going gonna, it's gonna to differ from manufacturer to manufacturer and batch to batch yeah absolutely no i and i've seen some of that myself when i was uh do you guys know dr uh paula prada yes actually yeah i remember her from fiu yeah so she's now at texas tech and she runs their crime lab i'm actually going to be doing a podcast with her coming up this weekend but in any case uh, i got to go to the lab and see some of the things that that they were testing chemically uh and the same thing on the manufacturing side of things and it, it it surprises you that Wow. So, how does this work? If it's coming off of this as an as an odorant, what you know? How what's the connection that's actually happening to the dog? And one of the things that we are hypothesizing as a potential thing is, they say, for example, I put a drop of this liquid on your tongue, and you go, "Oh, that's banana," even though it didn't give you banana, but your brain thought banana. Is there or is this possible that the manufacturer of these different uh, produce training aids have come up with something similar where even though you test it, it doesn't come off as that target substance that you say in the package, but yet the dog knows it as that. Uh, And is that probable? 
and you know that's something that's still being looked at and, and researched. Well, and also over time, what does it look like over sure. time? I mean, chemicals change, yeah. they react with other chemicals in the air. Yep. So how does that look from hour four onto hour 24? Yeah, no. And, and added to that one, one uh, handler gave me a great response one time. He goes, here's my problem when it comes down to the whole thing of, you know, manufactured product versus, you know, the uh, controlled product, uh, the, the training aids I use. A manufactured one, basically anybody can go buy online. And therefore, it's not illegal to have. And I have to make sure I am training my dog and it's doing this on illegal substances. So I don't ever want to be put into the argument of, well, how do I not know that Johnny bought whatever product just to do his own stuff and my dog alerted to something that's legal to have, not illegal to have. So that was a interesting point of view, but relevant nonetheless. So, because if anybody can go buy, or not anybody, but in general, the possibility of someone being able to buy the product on their own and use that uh, for whatever means they want to use it for, it does exist. You know, that, that probability does exist. So, but onto our, onto in that same realm of, of what we do best practice wise, uh, as a researcher and having canine experience about the different canine programs that exist, What's your guys' opinion on ha- that? Basically, no matter what the detection principle is, having a at least a odor recognition test as part of an evaluation process for a K nineteen. All right, I'm going to chime in here because I have a lot of feelings about this. Um, Perfect. <laughs> and so we always want an ORT, an odor recognition test, um, in our in our programs, and we want it to be done first because. We have wasted so much time um, doing operationals with dogs that don't even know the odor. And so that's a waste of everyone's time. Um, and so we want to make sure that the dogs recognize the, you know, the odors that are going to be part of the, whatever it is, certification, validation, training, whatever it is, before we even move on to the, to the, next, um, to the next step. And it's also a good uh, point for us to have, um, data point for us to have, because the ORT is very much about dog recognition of odor, whereas the operational aspect is about the handler and the dog, the dog team working a search scenario. And so there, you get different mm-hmm. answers um, from those two parts of a certification. Yep. And the, but the common response I get when I bring this up is, it is an odor recognition test. My dog finds the odor out there in the practical that's, evaluation. That's bullshit. It's bullshit, and I'll tell you why. Because we've also seen um, evals set up completely Im- improperly. So, um, you know, when, when we go out and we set up uh, an eval, we will disturb multiple areas within the search area. Because um, sometimes you find dogs that are just... Uh, finding fresh disturbance. They're actually not, or they're mm-hmm. keying in on the disturbance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we plant blanks throughout the search scenario. Um, we have all sorts of things. And so dogs are also fantastic at finding just bits of aberration, right? Those, those, those tiny bits of differences. And so that doesn't mean the dog knows the odor. It means the dog is really smart about figuring out which one of these things doesn't belong in this area. Um, and so again, those are two different aspects of, of a certification. The other thing that, and Jen and I are seeing this over and over again, and we actually 
believe that a policy change needs to be made mm-hmm. um, is that a lot of people are certifying on their own training aids, yep. their own their own odors, and we're like we're horrified to see that because what we know about these odors and these training aids is that they're often terribly cross contaminated. Yep. And even if they're not, it's still it's it's like the open book test, take as long as you want. <laughs> and oh by the way, here's a practice test and here's all the answers to the practice test. Like it's it's not a we in our mind that's not a scientifically valid certification. You have to bring in third party odors that are, you know, fresh in some manner of, of how that however that's defined and those dogs need to be able to find that they cannot just find their own their own training aids no i've um, i've i fully agree with that and but it scares people within the industry when you tell them that one they're doing an odor recognition odor recognition test it freaks them out for whatever reason i always tell everybody it's simple it's a baseline you know all things across the board distracting odors proofing odors the target odor and blank are all in the same conditions. You know, th- this is also why it's different than a practical evaluation because you know, depending on where the odor is placed, things going. There's a number of things that are variables that are at play here. But where odor recognition test equals that across the board. So then you can do exactly what you said. You see very quickly: does the dog know odor? Does it not know odor? And then added to that, to what you said, is don't use your own training aids. You got to use something different than what you're using every single day for all those things that you just brought up. But again, there's this fear that exists uh, for any number of reasons of potentially being wrong. And, and we know dogs are not 100%. And the and, legal side accepts that as well. And this is not about the dogs. This is hum- you know, human behavior. Oh, yeah afraid to fail and no one wants to fail but at the end of the day don't you want to know if your dog isn't finding one of the its target odors or one of its trained odors i want to know that absolutely Absolutely. and like do do i want to find that out in front of a bunch of people at cert no Mm -mm. i mean that's embarrassing but like I, i want to know that at the end of the day and so, like, if my, so I, I'll notice, uh, I, you know, my, my bomb dog usher has a ton of trained odors mm-hmm. and some of them are in his brain and like solid. And for whatever reason, like I don't need a whole lot of maintenance training on him. Mm-hmm. And then there's other odors that he, that just don't stick for whatever reason. Um, and so I notice that I have to constantly re-imprint and re-expose to things like RDX Mm-hmm. Um, like really pure RDX, not like yeah. RDX four. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I want to know if if his proficiency on RDX is, has fallen off. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, I, I think these are important aspects of like feedback. I also think it's important to to give handlers the opportunity to do certs that are not like that don't have the heavy consequence of a cert, right? Sure. Like set up orts for them periodically. Set up correct. Um, you know, these, these practice tests or whatever they are so that they get used to it. And then they're like, you know what, now I can, you know, do some up training and then get ready for that big test, you know, uh, a couple of weeks from now. They're, they're less afraid to have the, what I call the clipboard syndrome. The minute they see the evaluator out there, the clipboard, they all go to hell. Right. Exactly. And and that's that's the other aspect of just like, we just do not train at all. Like, what our operations are no, like. No, unfortunately. And so it's that stress. Like everyone does worse during cert and it's because they're, they're stressed. 
Mm-hmm. And and we notice this, you know, with even out like outside of canine, just in law enforcement or military or anything. Um, and so we they they just know that while they're in training, there's no consequence, and mm-hmm. the dogs know that too. So everything's yep. like lighthearted and it's fun and whatever. Um, so you know, Jenna and I try and increase the realism of some of these training exercises by providing real world consequences for when um, handlers mess up and. Like there, you know, there's going to be a tripwire in there and it's Uh not going to have explosive, but you're going to get a glitter bomb in your face. Um, and you're going to be embarrassed or, you know, there's stress vests that you can wear. And so there's a physical punishment Uh um, for, for making an error and the stress goes up and that's, those are the kind of, um, scenarios that we should be training in. And we just, it's just really not part of, of how we train right now. Oh yeah, no, and you bring up another thing too, which is, uh, again, this is a little bit more common in the drug world than the bomb world, but I always hear, oh, I don't reward my dog on the street. Okay, so when you deploy your dog and search that vehicle, let's say, you don't reinforce, you don't re- uh, reward the dog. Okay, so back to one of the things we brought up earlier, there's a huge difference between training and reality. In training, they it's like Christmas morning Toys are flying in, everybody's happy and cheerful. Then all of a sudden, in reality, it's tone of the handler is very different. It's just a praise and drag the dog away. And and over time, these handlers are going, well, my dog just doesn't do this really well on the street, but does really well over here. And I'm like, well, no freaking kidding. Shocking, Shocking, right? Yeah. And then how do we truly expect the legal system to trust us if we tell them we don't reward the street and again, I always tell handlers, it depends on how you answer this question. You know, if you're doing a verbal reward schedule, then yeah, then this one I might just, you know, I may not give the primary reinforcer, but I'm still giving a secondary and so on. But the to answer it, to, to do what most handlers say is, well, I don't want to give a reinforcement for something I don't know is there yet. You know, I don't know what the, well, if you've done your training properly, that dog did that response because there's odor there. What are you worried about? Oh, what if there's something else along with it? What if there's a bunch of cash or a bunch of tobacco? Okay, well, aren't you putting those out in your training? If, <laughs> you know, it, it, the argument goes away as you start bringing these things up to them, but it, it, it boggles my mind at times, other than, let's say, a, a safety concern or a uh, or something where it's, they're using a very reward schedule that makes sense. But a, a lot of times it's fear. Uh, well, I don't. I'm afraid if I do this, this will happen. And again, back to all of our points. If your training is sound, what are you fearful of? Right. You know. So, yeah. Yeah. and going into that, and either one of you guys can answer, Jenna, if you want to jump in on this one. How important is doing blind and double blind searches as part of your routine training? And have- basically, what's your opinion on how often you should do it? We have so many soapboxes, so I'm going to let Jenna jump on this one. absolutely it needs to be incorporated and it needs to at a minimum be um single blind uh we we do do double blind testing but with the way that we have our tests set up with our orts and everything it's very easy to do single blind and keep it um very simple Mm -hmm. and uh, very clean data but we see it a lot within the military these guys are not used to having those types of situations they're used to always knowing where it's in where it's at or wait, I'm leaving the room and I don't know if I got it right or wrong. Well, you're not going to know if you got it right or wrong uh-huh. when you're out in the field. Um, it, just like the people, right. oh, well, I'm always 100%. Well, how do you know what you missed? Well, I don't. Okay, so you're 100% mm-hmm. on what you knew was there. Um, so absolutely, you have to have 
at a minimum, single blinds going through in your training. And even better, have single blinds that someone else is setting up for you, not someone within your department. No, and and, and again, I've had trainers even argue this with me is – I'll, you know, I did this a lot when I worked with the Naval Special Warfare Group is where I would show up to the training, set it up, and then go back to my vehicle. And then the other trainer and handlers would show up and they'd say, okay, what do we got today? And I'm like, okay, there's your area. The tra- of course, the trainer doesn't know what I have set up, but I just tell him, go along with the handler, come back, let me know what you guys find. And sometimes it's completely blank. Sometimes there's something there. But the shock on their faces when you first throw that at them is like, oh, wait. You know, I, I'm so used to being told whether I'm right or not. No, go figure it out. This is real. Handle it. You know, and many times when they've accomplished that, the confidence level when they get done is actually better than not. But I've had trainers go, well, how do you know if they made a mistake? How do you address a mistake? Okay, well, that's what the other training aspects are for. In this situation, this is how we can, you know, evaluate better where we stand versus always being what I call a hover trainer going along no that's not right keep going don't don't stop keep you know all these different things that trainers do to kind of help that handler out or the team out you, you, we don't have to do that as often yeah, you know the, that's good that you do that i also as a handler hate when i get told that um mm-hmm. and, and it's like but you're right at the end of it when i'm like was that blank or am i crazy and they're like it was blank and i'm like wow that was <laughs> that was awesome. oh it's so hard and they and they did it you know we did it right and i trusted my dog and and you leave that feeling you know awesome um and, and so and yeah and then and then to give them the opportunity if it wasn't blank uh mm-hmm. to say hey you missed it and try and you know try and work it again so that you end Absolutely. the day on a high like jenna and i talk about the psychology of and I guess the cognition of this all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. We had a study with uh, where we were trying to find the threshold um, of a, of dogs. And so we had to tell the handlers, we had to do a lot of pre-briefing with the handlers to say, listen, we are going to put you in scenarios and the dogs are, there's going to be target out there and we're going to work until your dog's, fail like we're going to we have to find the lower limit of what your dogs uh-huh. can find and so there's going to be target out there and your dogs aren't going to find it and your dogs are not wrong and you're not wrong yeah. like just uh-huh. keep at it we need you to keep your spirits up we need you we need to keep your dogs motivated and happy to be in the hunt and so at the you know if they do a good search you know we need to give them an attaboy and make sure they stay motivated throughout this week or whatever it was of, mm-hmm. of you know these searches and you know, not everyone, not everyone can do that. Um, and, and it was, it was definitely tough, but you know, that, that's that psychology aspect of the handler that is, is so important of the, of the dog team. Oh yeah. And as an evaluator, I always tell canine teams, I feel more confident in a team that can search an area and successfully come out and tell me it's blank than the ones that can easily walk through and tell me what they find. Right. Because is that mental pressure, like you said, of you've searched an area and you've, let's just say you've got vehicles and you're five, six vehicles in and you haven't found anything yet. What's going through your head, you know, and how does that affect the dog? And it's, it's pressure, you know, and, but how unreasonable would it be if I was a judge and I said, you know what, handler, you know, let's, I want to see for myself. Get your trainer to bring training aids over here and I will have your trainer set up a search. When that, tra- when that search is set up, we will, ha- we will witness you conducting this search and see what happens. And, of course, the trainer shows up. I tell, as a judge, tell the, the trainer, don't put anything out. 
Here's our area I want searched. These are, you know, the conditions are good where we would know there's nothing, there's no potential odor present at all and have the handler come search. And as a judge, I want to see, can the dog team tell me there's nothing here? Right. Because to me, that that validates you better than anything else, saying that your dog knows odor when it's just as proficient when no odor is present. Yeah, blind, blinds and blanks um, are, are tough to incorporate, but they're so, so worth it. And, uh, you know, Jen and I had a project where we had uh, dogs that were off leash in a set of, I don't know, maybe 15 different rooms down a hallway. And mm -hmm. we had a very high ratio of blanks. Um, mm -hmm. And we used, you know, crazy stuff like random number generators. We had a phenomenal uh -huh. trainer um, in, in this study. And these dogs um, would, you know, go into the first room and search the, the room or the, the scent wheel. And then mm -hmm. there's nothing there. They just, they left the room and they went to the next room. And uh -huh. I had not seen that in a long time because I would find dogs that were just, they, they were convinced something had to be there or they would guess or they were yeah. false or they, they just, they weren't really, um, they weren't it, mentally you know, flexible to try something different. Yeah. And they weren't really that independent to just, you know, mm -hmm. trust their own self and their own search yep. abilities. Um, and so we, we had dogs that were, you know, searching entire, uh, floors of buildings by the, by themselves and very comfortable leaving a room saying it's blank. And it was just, it was amazing to, to witness. Absolutely. No, it's one of the coolest things when I've done something similar, where, like you said, you have a number of blank spaces, let the dog off leash. And sometimes how quickly they will find their way to the space that has the target substance in it. And had a handler been involved, it would have taken forever to get there. And who knows what would happen in between time. But when the dog is left to do its do what it does, use its skill to its best, it's a highly efficient, very useful, uh, you know, biosensor to, to locate something. But a lot of times, like I said, we get back to constantly is we get in our own yeah, way. Absolutely. And so I'll start this last question with Jenna. Um, and, and then Michelle too, you can add into it. If you had to you know, pick, let's say three bullet points, what are important considerations that a canine program should have to further enhance their credibility and reliability, especially as the canine world evolves more in, in the science aspect. So I know part of research would say is containment of training, but what else would, or what are some things that are important, like three top things that are important? So I would say first one would definitely be, what are you training on? Um, if you're not training on the right stuff, then you're already off to the, to a bad start. Um, two is um, good training records. Uh, we see it a lot. Hey, I see what you've been training on because a lot of times what you've been training on, you know, like Michelle was saying, how many blanks are you instituting? How many controls are you instituting? How many times have you seen the target? That's going to tell you a lot about not just the dog, but also the handler and how that team is going to work in different scenarios. And then three is everyone being on the same page. Um, we've seen it in different programs where people will say, oh, well, I don't really like the way that that one trainer works. I like it better how this other trainer works. Well, why can't everyone be training on that? Everyone's going to have their little nuances, but having that, that common understanding of, hey, th th this is what our goal is, and we may be getting at it a little bit differently, but we all need to have that recognition that we want to be training twice a week, four hours. You know, We're going to make sure that we're rotating through who's putting the training aids out. We're going to make sure yeah. that we're finding new training areas. So it's just having a, a clear program and path forward. We see it a lot where it's kind of just discombobulated and, everyone is kind of grumbling and well, I don't really like the way that we work this. Michelle, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, so I um, will second the, the training logs. Um, 
w you know, we're data driven and that data, it helps tremendously and not just training logs. Like if, if they're on paper, you really can't find trends. And so if you have, mm -hmm. you know, uh, training log software, or even if it's in Excel, um, you can start to notice trends and, you know, when proficiency starts dropping off or, you know, catch problems before they, um, become actual issues, training issues. Um, and so, yeah, we were heavy on, on, on the data there. Um, and then I, I really try and push cross training. Um, sometimes we, we just stay within our own little tribes and that doesn't yep. help us, uh, and, and so as much as you can get out and train with other agencies and on their training aids, um, or sometimes the, uh, if you're in the national capital region in DC, um, the FBI holds quarterly, uh, explosives trainings, and those are great opportunities to get out there, uh, and train on, uh, you know, really high quality explosives from the FBI. Uh, so yeah, I'd definitely do some cross training and then, um, embrace the change in the science um, as, as much yeah. as you can. And, and part of that will be not being afraid to, to fail. Uh, we fail a lot. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you yeah. have to have a bit of that tolerance to do that um, and move your ego out of the way um, and, you know, just really, really focus on the fact that that failure, that breakdown typically will lead to a breakthrough uh, and in your training or in your operations. No, I, and I fully agree. One of the things that I do quite a bit on social media is pose questions. I'll pose random detection dog questions. And, uh, you know, many times those questions will kind of create, it can be stir the pot or create argument, but and it's funny, I'll get called out. There are certain people that'll go, oh, you're just posing that question because you know it's controversial or, yeah. But what it does is create conversation outside the tribe. It allows individuals in social media is a platform that's there that really allows people that don't ever get in contact with each other to hear information shared. And despite all of the background noise or the the debate process, there's pieces of information that will stand out. There'll be a common thing that occurs, but it's funny that, you know, we are still unfortunately very much tribal in our factions when it comes to the, in the dog world, but doing things. And I, you know, first thank you guys for being on the podcast and sharing this information, but it's all about, and as you guys are researchers, it's all about starting with a question and then, where does that question go? And we fully expect debates. We fully expect uh, controversy at times, but we got to start somewhere. You know, we, we got to take that information. We want to encourage it. And we, we want to encourage asking some of those basic questions or challenging some of the assumptions. Um, like yep. what are our training aids made out of? Uh, and and yeah. so it's, it's only from doing that, that you're really going to make any, any progress. And it's not about being right. It's about finding truth or as close to it as we can possibly get, you know, based on information Absolutely. we have. And I think a lot of times it turns into it's about being right or feeling yeah. that you're right. But so do you, do you guys conduct training seminars? And if so, how do people get a hold of you to do stuff like this? I know you guys are going to hit, so I'll see you guys there. But what are some of the things that you guys do outside of um, that? So we do, but everything, we don't have any sort of, uh, standardized curriculum or a, you know, a package. It's, it's really 
customized to what each person or what each agency wants. And so if they say, here's okay. one of our issues and here's what we'd like to tackle, or we just want an overview of best practices from, you know, that you can support with data or whatever it is. And then we really customize that to, um, to the intended audience. Uh, so we do do that. And then if they want to get a hold of us, um, they can, you know, uh, go to our website. So Jenna and I are both contractors and so they can go to xsetk9.com. Um, and so that's E X C E T letter K number nine.com. Perfect. And I'll put that in the show notes. So that way it's easy for everybody to find it and, and the link will be there. And again, I've been to just one of your guys' classes and the information that is shared is extremely helpful. And the things that the research that these women have been doing is going to be, have profound effect on a lot of ways. And it already is showing, like you said, within DOD and with their practices, how they're going to change on the storage of their training aids uh, going forward in the future compared to what it's always been. So I highly encourage listeners to uh, reach out to both Michelle and Jenna to you know, do what they can to enhance their program. It's a resource out there to you. Please use it. I can attest to it myself, how valuable it is. It changed Cameron's life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah with, hey, without a doubt. I mean, I sent Michelle, how many, I, I emailed you off and on in the very beginning, finding out about certain uh, products to use for storage yeah. containment and uh, containment and storage for, for training aids. So uh, yeah, great information because again, we have assumptions. There were things that we think of and know oh, this is, this works and there's so much that we assume uh, which can lead us down a, a, a wrong path and create ha- or create issues that we don't even know that existed until all of a sudden, let's say somebody like you comes in and says, Hey, we're going to do an, an ORT real quick. And then all of a sudden the wheels right. fall off and you're like, Holy crap, this is the easiest thing. And my dog can't even do that. So, um, and again, people, like you said, we, we know we have to be willing to fail and make mistakes because that's how we learn. You know, none of us are perfect near the dogs. There's an acceptable right. level so of, of error. But uh, I do greatly appreciate both you guys coming on here. I'm sure at some point I may even do a follow-up. Uh, are both you guys going to be at HITS? We will not. That's the plan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what, what, one of you will be at HITS, huh? Yes. <laughs> okay, awesome. Are you, are you doing a class out there, Michelle? Nope, just tagging oh, you, along. You get to hang out. All right, well, then I'll make sure... Uh, I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll pick out some entertaining classes you can go to. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Again, I thank you guys so much for being on the, on the program. And like I said, we may even do a follow-up one uh, when I get questions and so forth sent to me after this airs. So I will, again, listeners, if you have questions, please feel free to email me at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK, the number nine, dot com. I will either forward questions on to both Michelle or Jenna, or you guys, like you said, can contact them directly through their website, which will be listed in the show notes. I appreciate everybody listening. Have a good one. Well, that concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense. Again, I want to thank Michelle and Jenna for taking the time and coming on this episode. I hope all you listeners out there found this very informative. If you would like even more in-depth knowledge and hands-on education and training, Michelle, Jen, and I are going to co-host seminars where we will come out to your area to conduct this training. Things that we will cover will be the science 
and chemistry of odor, as well as all the cognitive practices that I discuss and teach in my programs. So if you're looking to enhance your program's training and education, please feel free to contact me at Ford at SilverStateK9.com. That's Ford at SilverStateK, the number 9.com. Like I said, we will come out to you, set up a three-day seminar where we cover all these things, and we go hands-on with you and your dog teams to help implement or enhance your program. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you on the next one.